Hello. Can you believe we are on episode thirty, and it's the last episode of season one? I can't believe it. I actually can't believe we've done thirty episodes. That's insane. It's. I know, right? Looks like we made it, etc., etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. We need to give ourselves a big pat on the back. Ah, yeah. A rousing round of applause. Kind of um, best of. <laughs> who has best time for that? Not me, <laughs> not you, because I'm fully in season two mode and I'm like, yeah, what's next? Learn from past things, moving on, new things, new beginnings, new hosts. Can't mm-hmm. wait. Women Who Rebrand, the podcast. Honest and humorous conversations about the transitional phases people experience to grow, start over, or rebrand to become their most authentic selves. Hosted by Sreeta Fontaine and Chioma Olalei, and features special guests who are professional rebranders. The podcast covers starting over at different stages of life, championing personal growth, aka a personal rebrand. So today's episode, um, we have Alona Bannister, American expat, qualified US attorney, UK solicitor turned author. Um, Alona grew up on Staten Island and lived in New York City until she married her British bae and moved to London. Um, She practiced immigration law in the UK before taking a career break to raise her two young sons and expected, unexpectedly found herself writing fiction. Um, She's got two books, first one being When I Ran Away, that was her first novel, and um, most recently published Little Prisons. So that's who we've got on today's show. Yep. Love Ilona. Love her writing. She's like, I'm going to claim her as our, well, I was going to say our own Zadie Smith, but Zadie Smith's British and Ilona's American, so she's not really our Zadie Smith. She's like an American Zadie Smith, but we'll adopt her as a British okay. Ilona well, Zadie Smith. she's married to a I, British I, bay and she's an expat. She lives here, so she's ours now. She's, America. Yeah, yeah. You lose America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You took Zadie, we'll take Ilona. Yeah, right, they took swaps. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall we let her in? Let's do it. Hi. Hello. Hi. Oh, I'm so excited. Yes. It's great to see you. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm so excited. I'm pumped. I'm like, I'm ready, yes. I'm ready to do it. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us um, on episode 30 and it's our last episode of the season so we're going out with a bang obviously Yay. Aww, thank you so much for having me I'm so excited to be here 30 episodes that's yes, huge congratulations that's incredible thank you thank you looking forward to season two so yeah I did do a quick introduction However, every um, episode we do allow our guests to say something about themselves, give a little bio, because, you know, it's always different when it's in your own words. I think, I think it translates better. But um, yeah, would you like to um, explain who you are to our lovely audience? Oh, thank you. I would love to. Um, So I'm Ilana. Uh, I am an author. Um, I am from New York. 
Uh, I've lived in the UK for about 15 years with my husband and our two boys. Uh, I used to be an immigration lawyer, um, but uh, after the birth of my kids, things took a different turn. Um, the road changed, and I found myself writing fiction. And um, now here we are, two books later. Uh, I never imagined uh, that this would be sort of um, the road that my career would take or where my life was going to go, but um, I'm really grateful for it. And I'm, I'm really surprised, too. I look at these books, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically, yeah, that's who I am. Yeah. I was going to say, how does it feel when you introduce yourself as an author after all this time of introducing yourself as something else altogether? Yeah, it's really, uh, it, it still feels kind of surreal, but that, but I'm only at the very start of my writing career. So I've only been doing this about five years, um, so I think that's why it still feels very new to me. Uh, and also because being a writer was never in my plan at all. It's never something I envisioned for myself. It wasn't part of my life plan. It wasn't a goal that I had. Uh, it, it feels, um, it still feels a, a little bit, uh, I don't know, we all have a bit of that imposter syndrome, don't we? Mm. But um, it still feels a bit foreign. Um, it, it's, it's just not something I ever thought that I would be. Uh, so I, it's, it still surprises me. Um, but it also, what's nice about it is it also feels like a different, I'd, I had been a stay-at-home mom for so many years that it's nice to now have this other person who is also me. Mm -hmm. um, and to see my name on a book cover um, actually means uh, that I've, I've achieved this thing mm -hmm. that felt really hard to get to. Um, so it has that meaning for me too. Which is amazing because, again, stay-at-home mums, obviously you're achieving something because you are raising humans to human outside in the human world. However, I think some people kind of lose themselves in there. It's all about the children and then it's like, yeah. where do you come in? And it's really yeah. important for you, if you need to, to be something else. So it is amazing that you've achieved two books in the space of five years. I'm like, how have you done that? I'm still on chapter one. <laughs> and two amazing books, like not just any old bish, yes. bash, bosh, whatever, like two incredible books. It's oh, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you. your first book, sorry, When I Run Away, um, depicts part of your, I think, after looking at it, kind of depicts some of your real life experiences, like the main character, Gigi, um, she's flees her office building when the twin towers were um were essentially blown up um you know and collapsed um and you were in the same area um as well during twin towers um which is just just really hard for me to comprehend obviously i remember everyone remembers of my age group and a little bit younger and obviously older where they were when that happened but um, how did you manage to use such a traumatic experience to create a humorous love story? <laughs> um, I'm glad to hear you say it humorous because that means a lot to me <laughs> that you found the book funny because uh, that's quite important. Um, so I think anyone who writes a book, especially if you're writing fiction, you're, the first time you do it, you're going to have pieces of yourself in it. 
Um, I think all authors do that, even if you're writing something uh, like a thriller or a mystery or science fiction, there's still going to be parts of your personality and experience in it. Um, when I first started writing, a description of the Twin Towers is the first thing that came out. Um, so I thought, uh, I, I, and that was maybe 15 years after the event. So, um, I felt quite, I, I could tell that it was something I was still processing and needed to, uh, express. Um, but also I, you know, I went back and forth about whether it was something I should include in fiction, whether enough time had passed, whether it was respectful to do that. Um, but I think what I and any New Yorker you speak to who is from there or who was there at the time, uh, I wanted to pay tribute to it because as time moves on and it, uh, you know, it's 20 years have passed now and it goes further and further. Oh, yeah. Um, we talk about it less and less and obviously things have moved mm -hmm. on. History moves on. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to pay tribute to my hometown um, and to New Yorkers and to that time, because there are many of us walking around in the world uh, who were very deeply affected by that day. Mm -hmm. And it stays with you, as we know all traumas do. They, they stay with us. Um, and the grief stays with you even when time passes, which is a lot of what Gigi's story is about, is how um, it's still the body still remembers it um, mm -hmm. even when time goes by. So I wanted to write a tribute to that time and to who we were then and to how we handled it. Uh, yeah, as a way of as a way of remembering it, um, but also, you know, with with the humor and the love story part, um, I think it's really important when you tell a, a hard story to give your readers some life rafts to hold onto, um, some 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 places for them to grip onto, to know that, to stay with you, mm. to know that there is going to be some hope and there is going to be some levity. Um, because we often cry and laugh at the same time. 100%. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I love oh, that. I and, think and it, it makes it... Sorry, go on. Sorry. No, I, I mean, I was going to say that humour, it just carries on into Little Prisons. And I would... I mean, I, I don't want to categorise you as a comedy writer because you're, like, you're obviously not a comedy writer, but you write with a very comedic undertone I think there's there's always something to laugh about despite the fact that there's some really hard things that you're you're writing about so is that you said it's important to you that people find you funny but did you set out to inject that humor into your writing or is it just something that comes naturally do you think um I th it's very hard to write something that's purposely funny I think, and people who do that, like comedic writers uh, or people who write sitcoms and stuff, it's really hard. And we know this, right? Because when you see those things or you read something that's trying to be funny and isn't funny, that's, <laughs> like, that's mm, awkward. Yeah, that's, yeah it's, it's terrible. Um, so when, when sort of humorous things or humorous observations come out, um, they come out from the characters' personalities, I think. I don't set out trying to say, like, okay, this is going to be a funny scene. Um, but I think that, that some of the people who I write, like Gigi um, and like some of the ladies in little prisons, um, there's something about, I think, New Yorkers and Londoners have this too. Uh, there's, there's a view of life where you can look at a difficult situation 
but you 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 kind of you can look at it dryly. You can look at it a bit sardonically, and you can you can find something quick to say about it, something um, to lighten the moment. Uh, I think in British culture in general, there's like a, there's a real um, ability to do that, which I have always appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, that even in the darkest times, somebody can make you laugh about it, mm-hmm. uh, because there is no choice, is there? We can either be upset and cry about it, or we can find something to propel us forward. And often that is laughter or something humorous or a funny observation. And also, I think that even when people are going through something hard, or even if they're having a hard life, people are layered, right? Mm. It can still be funny. There can still be things that they say that um, that make us chuckle or that make us think about something differently or to appreciate them. You know, there's many aspects to a personality. So, uh I appreciate. I appreciate that you saw that. Me personally, I always tried to find the humor in things, and I'm. And it, it translates well in your um, in your book. But I have to say, I am often when I hand in a manuscript, the first yeah. thing that my agent or editor will say is like, "Okay, this is a little bit heavy. You need to, <laughs> you need to lighten this up a little bit." I don't know what you were going through, but like, I need to lighten this up. <laughs> so it's often the second or third draft where that happens. Talking about heaviness, Little Prison, so your current book that was launched last week had a wonderful launch event and um, it's very cute so you talk about these four women in that book and they're all very different but they're all they're linked they all live in the same building I'm not going to give it away and um, they are all going through stuff right so what was it what was the inspiration behind that because you talked about the twin towers happening and that came out in when I ran away but what was it that drove you to write about these particular women? Like many things in my writing career, this sort of happened accidentally. So uh, I, when I wrote When I Ran Away um, and my agent was taking it to editors, we had a meeting with my editor. And a week before that meeting, my agent said to me, uh, by the way, make sure you have your idea for book two ready. Mm. And I said, I'm sorry. Book two, I didn't know how publishing worked. I didn't know that that was an expectation Mm -hmm. uh, that I was supposed to have something kind of on the go. I thought I had done, you know, my thing. (laughs) But um, uh, so I had to think quickly. And um, the thing that I've learned about myself is that I carry some, I carry stories and people around subconsciously. I just need to. I need the impetus to have them come out. So when she said that to me, I, I had had a person in mind, Penny. Um, you know, I'm a, I've struggled with anxiety and claustrophobia and agoraphobia at different points in my life for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I've always been interested in the psychology of that. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to write about someone like Penny who has an extreme um, form of anxiety. Uh, and then, you know, as an immigration lawyer, I was always aware of the overseas domestic worker visa. Um, I was always aware of trafficking. I had worked in anti-trafficking in Ukraine 20 years ago. And uh, I thought, wouldn't this be interesting if you have two women trapped in a building and maybe they can help each other escape? Mm. Um, so that was the first idea that I had and that I pitched. Uh, but when it came to writing it, um, you know, I write without an outline I don't have plots. I don't have things sketched out. I just start writing and the characters tell me what they want to do. And with Penny, it became obvious that she was going to need some people to interact with uh, because she's a housebound woman, but there's no story if she's not talking to people somehow. Mm. So Carla as her next door neighbor, well, that was obvious. Um, Darren, who delivers the groceries, that's someone that she could interact with. 
but then I thought, well, who else could she have a relationship with? Like who in modern life randomly knocks on your door? And then I thought, oh, Jehovah's Witness, because <laughs> they, I've had many Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the door in my neighborhood. And um, I, I just always thought it must be so interesting what they see through the glimpses of doorways, yes. uh, right? They 100%. must see so much. Yes. Yeah. And I thought, um, and that's where Mabel came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was writing, I thought it was going to be about Penny and woman, but Carla and Mabel like really, really insisted on telling <laughs> their stories. Um, and I realized that what was happening, uh, is that I was writing a story about immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has a bit to do with me, you know, having a bit of sadness about leaving my career cause it was a job that I really loved, uh, but finding a new way to advocate for migrants and to talk about immigration in this different way, on this different platform, maybe to reach the public through these fictional stories, which I hope really humanize uh, some of the things that we see on the news. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I realized that that's what was actually happening, um, then I thought, okay, well, that's what this book is about. We're going we're gonna to talk about different migrant stories and, um, and what they mean, what they actually feel like. Mm-hmm. And it translates so well. I love the fact you don't, have a particular structure in mind and it's like the characters kind of grow as you write and you can you can read that really well it's like the characters obviously developed over time and you get to know them like you would normally if so rather than be bombarded with so much information about the character you know everything and like the first page it's like more and more and more you get to know yeah yeah. I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it as a way to write a book because it's, <laughs> it's, no, that's it's not very, how I teach you to do it. <laughs> no, it's very, it's very inefficient and it's very uh, time consuming. You go around in circles a lot, mm-hmm. but, um, but I find that for me, the way, the only way to make people's voices feel authentic is to let them, uh, is to just let them sit with me and to kind of channel yeah. who they are. Yeah. Um, get to know and them. Then, yeah, and then build the story from there. In my mind, I'm building you out as like a whacking phoenix type of person who embodies the characters <laughs> that, that you're writing. So have you ever found yourself behaving like What's... your characters? Is that like what? method writing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think part of the other thing that happened with this book is I wrote it in lockdown. So ah. the women to me became very, very real because yeah. other than my family, they were all the interaction that I had. They, I was thinking about them all the time. So I would be homeschooling or doing laundry or making lunch. And I would be, you know, I'd have to go find half an hour to go write down. Like Mabel just told me something. And then I'd have to like, go, <laughs> go write it down. Um, so for me, they, they were like roommates. I mean, they were living with me. Um, and I think you can feel that in the book a little. The book, people describe it as claustrophobic, but I, I think you can feel that I was, you know, where mm-hmm. we all were, locked in, locked mm-hmm. in at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had this, like, intense time to spend with them. So they definitely, I mean, I didn't inhabit them, but they definitely were very real to me. Mm-hmm. I missed them when the book was finished. <laughs> I missed them. <laughs> it's like when you watch a series, isn't it? When it comes to an end, you kind of miss the yeah. characters. Yeah, yeah. And talking about series, did you ever think that this would be, like, were you thinking about how it would look on telly or in a film as you were writing? Because it, to me, as I'm reading it, it just, I can I can see it playing out. I can see it being a BBC One miniseries or whatever. Was that in the back of your mind? 
Um, it wasn't, but uh, I think I would love to see it that way because I think this story would lend itself to um, being on screen, and I would love for that to happen someday. Um, I, I think I, one of the things I've learned, though, from writing this book, because the because the point of view changes all the time, and it goes from third person to first person, and it changes narrators, and sometimes it's omniscient, sometimes it's the person um, that. I think in future when I write, I think I do have to have a bit more of a thought process about what might happen to this book later on and if it gets translated mm. onto screen, because I think mm. um, this book uh, is quite convoluted. It's, it's not simple, um, a simple structure. Mm. Uh, so that's a lesson for me. But again, this goes back to had I been, you know, sort of organized and plotting it out and outlining it, then perhaps I would have come up <laughs> with an easier um, structure. But I do think the characters lend themselves to to that. So I would love if that happened someday. But as you said, you didn't necessarily mean or start out or plan to write a book and traditionally not, in quote marks, an author as such. So you followed your own process and it kind of, it just, it worked. It worked for you most definitely. But again, learning on past mistakes and rebranding and growth (laughs) maybe book three like you said would have um well would be done differently but I love that I love that yeah just trusting your own process and just learning from past yeah and that's been a big lesson for me in writing in general is learning to trust your subconscious Mm. your subconscious does so much work um and, and I like to tell people when they're writing, like, especially those times when, when you feel like nothing's coming out or you, you're not able to, to, or anything you're doing creatively, if you can't get it out, that's the time when your brain is actually working on it. You're working all the time, mm-hmm. all of the time. Um, just because you're not physically doing it doesn't mean it's not happening in your brain. And mm-hmm. if you just let it sit for a bit, then I find um, suddenly, you know, three days of nothing and then I'll have tons and tons and tons of things to write because I've allowed my brain to just sit with it and work on it. Um, so I think it's important for creative people to know that like it's, it's okay if it's not coming because your brain is working all the time. You have to trust it. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Mm. I love the fact that you actually birthed the book out of lockdown as well. I think there have been quite a few people that I we've spoken to before that have said that they wrote a book during lockdown. And I'm like, how, did you manage to write a book? I was just like drinking every single day and because I was homeschooling every single day with my boys. I've read that you've got um, quite a full-on household with your children and your husband. Um, You're the only quote-unquote neurotypical in the house. Yes, yes I am. Correct me if I'm wrong, you're your husband has ADHD or undiagnosed ADHD? Um, yeah. So my kids, my boys are nine and 11. Yeah. Uh, they both have diagnosed dyslexia and diagnosed ADHD right. now. Both of them. Um, okay. And as you go through that process, one of the things you learn is that it has a genetic component. Mm-hmm. It runs in families. And as we were going through it, um, my husband it just became very clear that he had a lot of these characteristics and it, it made a lot of sense. And we both sort of put a lot of pieces together um, because obviously, you know, we're in our forties, it wasn't something that was diagnosed very often Mm. uh, when we were kids. Um, Mm. So he started to recognize a lot of things. It happens to a lot of parents. They start to recognize, Oh my God, that's my whole life 
when uh, the children are being assessed. So, um, so now we all know uh, what we're working with. We all embrace it. Um, this is a very uh, energetic household. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's a lot of work. Uh, lockdown was... Yeah, how was that? Well, lockdown was <laughs> lockdown was challenging. Uh, homeschooling for my children with their learning issues was mm. hard. Um, mm. So, it, so I had to be very involved in it. Uh, mm. It wasn't just a, oh, they'll go look at the screen and do their work. That I had to be there every step of the way. Mm. Um, but what I learned from them. You know, I, I was used to be a person who was like very organized, very regimented, very much had routines. I'm still very meticulous and detail oriented. Um, but when you live with three people who are, are like constantly rotating on a different axis and always thinking outside the box, you know, I'm over here in the box and they're like all around <laughs> the box. <laughs> and like, I have to stay in the box so that we can all function. <laughs> But they uh, have taught me uh, they don't think in straight lines. And mm -hmm. as a person who's trying to be creative, that's so amazing to be around. And it's really unlocked my creativity. And I really think the reason I'm so surprised that I don't write, you know, I, I thought when I started writing, oh, then I need to read all the books about plots and outlining. And I'm going to do that and find the beats and plot points. Yeah. And I surprised myself that actually I'm not like that at all. But I think it's because that's the influence that they've had on me yeah. that actually when you let go of rigidity and when you allow yourself to be flexible and you stay more open and you go with the flow a bit more, um, you allow energy to come in. Mm. And I think that's why I write the way I do because they've taught me how, how to be that way. Mm. Um, I mean, they still, you know, it would be great if anyone could find their shoes. That would be excellent. <laughs> it would be amazing if anyone um, you know, could, could organize themselves in any way, but, um, it's okay because, uh, I, they've had a big influence on, um, my creativity and I really appreciate that. I love that. So in my household, it's, um, yeah. the reverse of that. So I've just recently been diagnosed with ADHD. So it's funny kind of looking back at, um, lockdown and the way I kind of work. So I'm literally all over the place, like you said, a different day, thinking outside the box constantly. And then there's another box and another box and another box. And then you're ending up with like 20,000 boxes. But my family, I guess, have kind of taught me to be more organized and to slow down. So when you combine all of those elements, it's like the best of both worlds almost. It really is. But yeah, uh, what's it called? Homeschooling. I look back now and I'm like, okay, so that's why that was your type of homeschooling. It was very bouncy, dramatic, arts, here, there, different things every single day. <laughs> but yeah, and then dad did like um, the serious stuff like maths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, Both of your stories are amazing because... We're, I think, probably not so much now, but previously we were told that anyone who was different from the neurotypical, in inverted commas, was deficient, mm. had a blocker, a barrier, wasn't going to be able to achieve whatever. But what you're showing is that 
we're all on this spectrum and it's not that neurotypical is where we all need to be it's just that that's one place on this spectrum and you can operate in various ways across any bit of that spectrum and it's fine so we we need to really find another word for neurotypical because it's it's not it's just it's a a point on this spectrum yeah and, that's, and that's recognizing the strengths of every place on the spectrum. There are so mm. many strengths. You know, mm. one of the things I really worried about with my kids was you get these diagnoses and it feels really heavy and these are big words and it's, it can feel hard and it mm. does have challenges, but there are also strengths. And I say that to them all the time. And, and, and my husband too, like, yes, there are certain things about the organization of our household life that he is never, ever going to be able to cope with or help me with, but, <laughs> but he brings strengths. There are strengths that he brings, things that I do not have, um, that he gives to our children and to our family mm-hmm. life. And, um, I think when we look at the positives of it, um, it really, it makes it so much easier, um, and when you're open and talking about the challenges and the strengths, it's it's just a much more positive experience mm. than it used to be, I think. What does your mm. husband do, if you don't mind me asking? Um, he works at Right Move. Oh, sorry, I got really excited because yeah. I love because <laughs> everybody loves Right Move. <laughs> of course, I would spend hours on there. I'm going to say that house can't afford it now, but it might yeah. be available in five years. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's where he, that's where he works, and in his job, you know, that's the thing about ADHD too. Um, you know, he is extremely focused. Uh, he is e- extremely capable, extremely focused, um, really good uh, with numbers, uh, really quick. Um, he's he's excels at his work um, because hyper focus and that kind of laser sharpness that people with ADHD have is really um, you know it it works. Uh, also, his ability to think outside the box and think creatively. Um, has had a great impact on his career because he sees things that other people don't. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are definitely there are definitely advantages to it. So any parents who are worried about their children and getting diagnoses, I just really want to say, like, there are there are so many positives. Um, and and there, it's not a barrier to success in any way. No. As long as you kind of, like mm. you said, there's challenges, but there's so many positives. And if you kind of gravitate towards the positives and make it work for you like yeah what is it that you love and yeah that's a big thing basically do what you love and then you will just yeah hyperphobus and yeah. obsess and then it's win-win yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read something the other day and I was like mind blown because like I said I've only just got the diagnosis um and it's just a different way of thinking in a different way of learning and someone said that they actually read the end of books first and at first I was like they're spoiling the plot like why would you do that and then I was like kept on reading they were like so basically when you're reading a book you're not focused on trying to solve or thinking about where it's gonna go so if you know the ending first you can concentrate because you're like you know where it's gonna end up so then you retain more of the information. And I was like, so back in school, I was really good at like, um, what was it? Like, you know, when you have, I can't remember what it's called, um, X times three, and then you get the answer for algebra. I was algebra. really good with that because I had the answer. And I was like, my mind can figure out how you could possibly get the answer. So if you have the answers first, 
and might be a better way of learning. So yeah, that was just a little thing for parents, just in case kids were struggling. Give them the answer first, and then it might be. And then how a do you get that? Makes easier. so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. But it's just so wonderful how brains just think so differently, and I think we need to, like you said, get mm-hmm. over this whole normal. How does that specific person learn? What are they yeah. going to be good at? What can they gravitate mm. towards? Yeah. Mm. So that was my little thing for parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it really interesting. We'll have to do um, a whole episode in season two of our um, neurodivergence. Definitely. Ilana, dragging you back to your immigration career now. Um, so you spent many years as a, as a lawyer. I'm so mm. like, I'm in awe of the career that Ali you've McPeel. had it's just insane and I love the fact <laughs> uh, yeah Ali McBeal but like <laughs> helping the world just doing really great work good for the soul so you you've um supported uh people through immigration cases and you know a lot about this field right so we um were looking at some recent stories around immigration and there was one it's actually a, a story, a London-based story, but we've seen it happen before in the UK. So in Peckham last month, um, there was an arrest, uh, a Ni- Nigerian, uh, well, I guess an immigrant who's overstayed his visa. That's the story. And they tried to arrest him. The police came in and there were protesters who blocked the police from getting to him. So he's been let to let, let off and, and they, I guess they're going to get him another way. Um this we saw happen in uh, was it Edinburgh earlier in the year in Glasgow there was a big story it happened then as well hundreds of people came and blocked a van stopped the police taking away um, an immigrant so we're seeing all of these really beautiful examples of people just getting out there and doing what they can peacefully to stop these really inhumane deportations of of people back to situations where they just don't need to be going back to. But our friend Pretty has been working away. Yeah, yeah, get the claws out. She's been working away at um, this police crime and sentencing courts act thing. And and essentially, they're, they're trying to erode our rights to to protest and peaceful protest and I guess what we would like to hear from you somebody with your background and expertise is what can we do to to help people who are at risk of deportation any refugees or immigrants when our rights are being taken away yeah it's really frightening uh what is happening um and the uh restricting the right to protest is is a is a frightening development. Um, but, um, I, I, you know, I, when I was an immigration lawyer, I, I often felt like there was a fatigue in the public. Uh, there were so many migration stories. It feels really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It feels like a mass of people that are very distant. Um, and it's too much emotionally to invest in it. The pictures are horrible. Um, and, and the system is very opaque and we don't understand a lot about it. Um, then when the war started in Ukraine uh, and we had this outpouring of support for Ukrainian refugees. Now, I'm Ukrainian. I'm the daughter and granddaughter of refugees from the Second World War. I'm very moved by that. And I'm very grateful to the British public for how they've responded to Ukrainian refugees, um, opening their homes and all of that. 
Uh, but as an immigration lawyer and a person who has worked with migrants from all around the world, um, what I hope that has done is to open people's eyes to how many refugees there are here in the UK, many of whom have been languishing for years because of the Home Office's inefficiency in taking decisions, uh, people who are have left their families, um, who may not have community, uh, who are in desperate need of support, people who are coming here every day because the UK has the capacity and the resources and the freedoms to help. And I think... What I, what I hope the Ukrainian situation has done is to open people's eyes to the to understanding what it is when you are fleeing for your life, because the Ukrainians are fleeing for their lives, and so are the people in the boats coming across the channel, and so are the people who cross over the mm -hmm. border in the lorries. Um, and I hope that people can open up and stretch their compassion. Uh, now, there are so many incredible organizations, grassroots organizations that have been working for years with lots of different communities in the UK, and they need our support. They need our money. They need our time. Um, they need us to follow them on social media. Uh, they need us to back them, to share their posts, and to learn about the work that they do, uh, because there are a lot of people who need us. So, for example, Micro Rainbow is a charity that works with LGBTQ refugees, providing them with safe housing uh, and social integration and community support. It's a great charity. You should follow them, donate, volunteer if you can. Um, Revoke is a charity, tiny charity, that works with unaccompanied minors. These are teenagers who have come to the United Kingdom on their own. They have no family. They have no adult leadership in their lives. But Revoke is there, helping them. So follow them. Read about what they do. Donate if you can. Um, Care for Calais. That is an organization that is right now working on stopping legally the Rwandan deportations. So they have a legal team that is working on those cases. They need money to fund that. So go to their page. Donate if you can. They also have leaflets on there that you can give to any refugees you know so that they understand what these Rwandan deportations mean for them. Um, in the back of my book, there's Voice of Domestic Workers, Kalayan, Anti-Slavery International. They work with domestic workers who have been exploited by the UK's immigration system. Um, there are so many pockets of people uh, and communities in this country um, who need our support. And what I hope that the war has done is to, is to make us see them. And that's part of what my book is about. It's just about seeing people. They are here, and they are trying to live. Um, and if we can feel that, uh, and if we are, are capable of it, then we can do something to help them. And if, if, if donation isn't something that you can do, social media, just following these organizations and giving them more of a platform and boosting them so that they are more visible, that makes a difference. And being informed about yeah. what's happening. Um, it can be really overwhelming because there are so many stories in the news right now. Mm. Uh, but we have to listen, and we have to try to understand them and um, give support and connection where we can. And there are a lot of places to do it. Um, so that, that's really what my point is, that there are a lot of places to do it. Um, and there are simple things to do mm. um, that really will make mm. a difference to, to people who are struggling.
Join the Women Who Rebrand community on Instagram. We'll share episode reminders, behind-the-scenes footage, conversations about episode topics from other creatives, and more. Join the conversation at Women Rebranded. Okay, this is when I do a horrible, generic American accent. Don't judge me. <laughs> what in the world? See, I hammed it up, especially for you. I tried, I practiced. That was very good. Oh, yes. That was very good. Oh, thank you. I have been practicing. That was very good. Played with my very body in an American accent back in the day. Yeah. Um, so... Heavy, 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 heavy. Um, you are from Staten Island. Um, is that where, like, um, oh, I'm going off the tangent. No, ignore that. Ignore that. It's gone. It's it's gone. <laughs> um, America, what is going on? So, on June twenty fourth, oh, I know. Sorry, you're going to just have to talk about uh, on behalf of all Americans. Um, June twenty fourth. The United States Supreme Court upheld a Mississippi law that banned abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, with no exception um, for rape or incest. Um, In upholding the Mississippi law, the Supreme Court overturned one of the most famous Supreme Court presidents, um, Roe versus Wade a half-century-old opinion that established that their constitution protects the right to privacy, to have an abortion, restricting the ability of states to place an undue burden on that right. What's going on? And what does this mean, in your opinion, for women, not only in America, but throughout the world and here in the UK? Because we are all kind of watching America as like the greatest, most biggest country in the world who is a leader and we all follow. What do you personally think is um, going on and, you know, what it means for us? Yeah, it's really frightening, really upsetting and uh, really shocking. And I think everyone is still trying to get their heads around it. What it immediately means in America, um, just because I know this can be confusing sometimes for people, but um, What it means is that it leaves the decision on whether or not a state uh, allows abortion, it leaves it up to the state government. So it's not the federal government, which means that state by state, the laws will be different, which means that in some states there will be access and in other states there will be total bans. Um, Now, America is a huge country. It's gigantic. So if you are living in a state and, and these, the, the bans tend to happen in blocks. So there are blocks of states that tend to have the ban and, and it's the coasts that tend to not have, uh, to have access. Um, so if you are living in a state where there, it's banned and you have no access, uh, you will have to travel somewhere to obtain right. an abortion. But, you know, if you have children or you have a job, or you don't have the money to do that, right. uh, then you are not going to have access. And that is going to result in women going to different measures and it's going to result in the death of women. Um, and it will disproportionately mm-hmm. affect low-income women and women of color. And we know this and the court knows it and the government knows it and they have done it anyway. And they are gambling with the lives of women. Um, it is, uh, it, what is most frightening about it is the message also being sent by our government in the U.S. that the state now controls women's bodies. The state, 
the state can control women. That is the main message that mm. is being sent to us. Um, and it is a very sad time uh, and, and one which I hope that we come out of. We have to hope that we will come out of it. Mm. Um, but I think in the UK, it's really important that we don't take our rights here for granted. Mm. I think we have a tendency, things in the US for the past few years have been so chaotic that I think here in the UK, we tend to look over there. You know, I've lived here a long time now. We look over there and we're like, hmm, well, they're going off on one again and look at them and America's so crazy and all those things that they do over there, thinking that it's, it can't happen here. It can. Mm. Um, the law in the UK uh, is basically one which just prevents prosecution. So Abortion is still a criminal offense in the United Kingdom, but the the Abortion Act prevents you being prosecuted for it. So they never took it off the books. They just prevented you from being prosecuted for it if two doctors sign off on it. Um, so it's really important that that law, that, that a woman's fundamental right to receiving an abortion is actually translates into law, that it is embedded as a fundamental right in our laws. Mm. Um, because it's in a perilous mm -hmm. position and we are at risk of the same sorts of anti-abortion forces that won this victory in the U.S. supporting those same uh, organizations and entities here. Mm -hmm. They're strong and they have a lot of money mm -hmm. and now they've been emboldened. And that's the, that's the problem with, mm -hmm. with the issues that we're having in America is that once one thing tips over, there can be a domino effect. Yeah. Um, and so it's really important that here in the UK, we don't, we don't take for granted that, oh, that's just an American problem. Um, it's really important to pay attention to what lawmakers are doing here um, so that we don't face mm -hmm. the same situation. I mean, the whole of the UK and Ireland isn't completely um, in the same boat on abortion, because I know that in Ireland or Northern Ireland, there's still... It, it's different yeah. to how it is in you, in England and in Scotland as well. I think there's some different laws around abortion too. So it's not even like UK and Ireland is is a hundred miles away from yeah. what's happening in America. Yeah. Obviously, it's not yeah. to that extent, yeah. but we can't hold our hands up and say, "Look, it, yeah. it's not happening yeah. here. We're so yeah. great." By any means, um, and it's just the attitude towards women as well. It's the it's the looking at women's taking autonomy away from women. It's, mm. it's, it's about taking our control mm. um, away, uh, mm. forcing women back mm. into positions that we thought we left behind decades ago. Um, so, mm. oh, it's, it's hard. It's, mm. it's a hard time. There are lots of really difficult, heavy things going on, but I can only hope that um, there are a lot of people fighting and they're going to keep fighting um, for lots of different things, uh, and we just need to support them. We can't look away. Yeah, definitely. So um, the same support that we would be um, doing for immigration and stuff like that, so following the right um, charities, um, things online, do the same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And there are also, you know, if, if people are, are really concerned about what's happening in America, there are a lot of organizations that have set up um, travel access funds. Ah. So there are places where you can donate so that women in states where it's banned uh, can apply for travel money to be able to go access the health care that they need. 
Um, so that's something that if you're really concerned about it, that's something that people can do. That's great. There was something that I read or someone told me okay. that um, there's some corporations, some large businesses that um, are giving their employees funds to travel yes. as yeah. well. That's happening too. Which yeah. is amazing. But then it's like something that is so private, you have to just have to openly discuss. And it's like, mm. there's just, I'm just completely blown away by this it's like like it said this this thing that was half a century years old has just come up again and it's just a political thing really the people of the yeah. most amount amount of money get their way yeah and they regardless. roll progress back yeah yeah it's really frightening so when you said that was the one that was the one thing I didn't really understand about this whole thing because again you said there's quite a lot of stuff online and I've read parts and it's like how do you filter out the noise um, and the fake news and whatever. But my thing was, I didn't really understand the concept of if you live in one state and it's banned, but you can travel to another state to do it. Are there any repercussions when you come back? Because essentially, or in a way you've broken the law, but you're only breaking the law if you do it in that state. Yeah, that's something I don't know, actually. I haven't, mm. I haven't read anything about that yet. I don't know if we've gotten that far um, I don't know what happens. Um, I and and actually, it's it's a concern that we need to have about mm. when people do cross state lines. Because at the moment, you can cross state lines in America um, freely. Mm. But mm. if we're going to begin policing women this way, I mean, there's wow. no stop to what people can decide to do. What yeah. the states who are banning it can decide to do. So it's something to be concerned about. Mm. I don't actually know about that though. Though um, whether there will be repercussions for mm. people when they come back. Mm. But like you said, there is a domino effect and just there's so many situations that can be affected. So obviously there's there's rape and there's incest, but then there's just your choice. But also I've heard that chemotherapy stopping because, you know, that's going to affect the unborn child. And before that was your choice. There's just so many things just coming out of it. And it's just it's just a choice. The choice is being taken away. So like yeah. you said, the state's making the decisions for you. Yeah. Which is really just frightening. hard to get my head around. Frightening is is the is the word. I mean, Margaret oh, Atwood wrote Hand Handmaid's oh, Tale. I mean, how long ago? Like what what for No, I know, I know, this I know. Is show. And this I is know. our lives. This is, I know. This is and what it. we're living. I started watching it with my partner. He loves it. But no, I hate it because I'm like, I don't like this concept. It's going to come. It's going to come one day. Lo and behold. Lo and behold. She knew. So, yeah, it's the lady that wrote that, right? I would have thought it was a man. Yeah. But all right. Yeah. I'll allow it if it, a lady wrote it. She just knew. <laughs> she was sending that warning shot, but no one heeded the warning. We just let stuff happen. And um, mm. this is why we need to keep protesting. This mm. is why we need to educate ourselves and... And do what we can to stop these things as quickly yeah. as we can. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough times, but uh, there are a lot of good people trying really hard mm. to keep going. And you just have to hold on that um, history goes in cycles. And, yeah, and it we, really we'll does. come out of this one. Yeah. yeah. Women Who Rebrand is available on your favorite podcast platforms, including Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and Overcast. You can find guest information, recommendations and links on our blog, womenwhorebrand.com.
So this is our last episode for this season of Women Who Rebrand, episode 30. We've had so many guests who've come on and they've shared their really amazing journeys. And we've obviously ended with a bang with you, Ilana. So to wrap up season one, we'd love it if you could give our audience some advice um, for those who are or maybe feel stuck in a particular job or at a point in their lives and they really want to move on and change, but they're worried about taking that leap. What would you advise them to do? How can they just start to put those wheels in motion? Um, I think it's really important uh, to know that um, if things haven't gone the way that you wanted or if you're in a place where you are stuck or it's not the career you envisioned or the life you envisioned, I think it's really important to know that that's not a failure. Um, when I couldn't get hired and I was at a really low point, I didn't know what I was doing and I thought I was just going to be cutting up carrot sticks and organizing play dates forever. <laughs> um, I, I thought I failed, you know, all that education, all that money, the debt I'm still paying to have that career. And then it was gone. And I thought, well, that, you know, that I failed. Uh, but I now know a few years have passed and things have evolved. And I now know that that experience as a lawyer is actually what helped me to write these books and that I couldn't have written these books, little prisons in particular, if, if it wasn't informed by that experience. And so that career didn't turn out how I wanted it to, but it became this other thing and it informed this other work and I'm advocating in a different way. Um, so I think the first thing to remember is that nothing that you do is a failure if it doesn't go the way you had planned. Um, so the other thing is um, to also know that the pivot and the evolution can take some time. I think that we, you know, because of social media and because of how quickly people seem to succeed, how they become instant stars, how they seem to become instantly successful, instantly rich, um, that happens to very, very few people, 1% uh, of people maybe. Um, it takes time to build up something new. And just because it's taking time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So it starts with one class, with me taking a writing class and getting up at five in the morning to get my words in before I took the kids to nursery. And I, it was a year of that. And then the next year of trying to find an agent and nobody talking to me and me still not making any money and being rejected all the time. And then the next step of, oh, finally someone does want to listen to you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's years in the making. And um, if you want to make a change, it's okay if it takes time change doesn't happen instantly. But if you're in your 40s or you're in your middle age, um, I think also it's important to have confidence. One of the nice things about being in your 40s is that you know that you've done some stuff. You've done it before. Um, and if you want to change, you know that you can do it. You have some experience. You've lived some life. Um, so if you want to change, you have experience behind you and you can. Um, so yeah, I really encourage anyone who wants to do that. It's okay to take baby steps um, and nothing is a failure. And uh, yeah, do it because you can, because you did already. Amazing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I want to stand up. I want to I want to jump. I want to wait to end the season. 
<laughs> um, where can our audience continue to follow your journey? Ah, uh, so my website where I've got articles and stuff that I've written um, and my books is ilonabannister.com. Mm-hmm. Um, on Instagram is where I do most of my uh, social media stuff. So that's ilona.banister. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, but I don't really understand how to use Twitter. I, it's just so confusing. Um, <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> We need a lesson just, from Sarita because oh, I, I think she's cracked it. But, it. Um, <laughs> but it, that's at Ilana Bannister. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's all the places you can find me. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Such an incredible, um, informative episode. Because you had so you've got such a rich background. There's so many different things. Um, kind of like a bit ADHD as well, to be honest. All the fingers and these lots of eyes. So I think that's another thing that's rubbed off on you. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to have boxes that you didn't even know were there. <laughs> oh, thank you so uh, much. Thank and you so much. This was really fun. Thank you. Forward, you're welcome. I look forward to seeing um, and hearing because I will do audiobooks. Um, book three. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye, Bye. Anna. Women Who Rebrand will be back in the autumn with new hosts, new guests, and the most inspirational journeys and stories of growth. Catch us on Instagram for mini clips, behind the scenes and influential words of encouragement. See you on the other side.